Today we're going to talk about gospel suffering. Gospel means good news, and so we're talking about good news suffering. You say, does that make sense for suffering and good news to be in the same sentence? Well, we're talking about suffering for the gospel, and the reason that that happens is because we live in a world where the gospel is not is resisted, it's not embraced, it's rejected a lot of times. It's kind, it kind of reminds me, I was reading a, a story, an account within the past couple of weeks about a, a, a missionary worker in a tribal area of Africa where uh, many of the kids are suffering from polio. And so he tried to encourage them to receive uh, polio vaccinations, and they wouldn't do it because they didn't trust that it was a good thing. So it's very frustrating for him to see them not receiving the good news that, hey, there's a vaccine that deals with this. Similarly, there's, um, it's, it's pretty well known that heart attack, people who suffer from heart attacks, when they're given instructions, hey, you can recover from this and you can not necessarily die early if you start exercising, you change your diet, and you change your, your bad lifestyle habits. 90% of the people who get those instructions will not change and they'll, they'll just suffer, and many of them die. So they don't embrace the good news that there's ways that you can manage your heart attack symptoms and, and come out better. So what do we do with that? Uh, are we to d- just not proclaim the good news of the gospel because people reject it? And if we don't, are we ashamed of the gospel? Does God expect you and me to suffer for the gospel? Or is that just for extreme, extreme radical people? If so, how do we endure it? Well, let's look at what Paul has to say in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking specifically at verses 8 to 12. And I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. So it's going to start with verse 8. It'll be up on the screen. I'm going to back up a couple of verses and get a running start at it. In verse 5, Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan and flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you for your spirit that gives understanding to your word. We ask for your help to 
get what you want us to get from it and to be more faithful to Christ as a result, to have life birthed into us if we're not in Christ and to have his life grown in us if we are in Christ. So give us understanding of your word, Father, through your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Be seated. So in verse 8, Paul starts out with, therefore, because God has given you a, a sincere faith, Timothy, he's saying to his disciple Timothy, because God has given you a, a gift for ministry and has given you not a spirit of cowardice, but of power, love, and self-control, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but suffer for the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, but suffer for the gospel, he says. Now, Paul isn't necessarily assuming that Timothy's already ashamed of the gospel, but he's just, he just knows that Timothy has opponents, and he's, um, he's very well likely to be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. It's an ever-present temptation. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That's the gospel. The gospel is a testimony about Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It's about him. Why might Timothy be ashamed of the gospel? Well, from the, the world's perspective, there was a lot to be ashamed of. It was the message of a prophet who was rejected by his own people. He, uh, Jesus was executed like a common criminal. His core group of followers were fishermen and other undesirables. Not If you're a fisherman, you're not undesirable necessarily, but they, they were not high up in that culture. Uh, the message that people could receive eternal life and forgiveness of sins through faith in a crucified and resurrected Savior was foolishness to the Roman culture, and it was offensive to the Jews. The gospel was foolish and offensive because people were ignorant of, of how great their sin was, and that's a huge problem. They supposed that if they just did right, the right religious duties and, and rituals, and tried to live a good life, that, that God or the gods would be favorable toward them. But the gospel is only good news to those who believe the bad news. It's not good news if you don't know what the bad news is or you don't really understand how bad the bad news is. And the bad news is that you and I are more sinful than we ever imagined. That's, that's bad news. Therefore, no religious duties or rituals or rule-keeping or being born into the right people can uh, make you right with God, make you acceptable to him. But the good news is, as Paul said back in 1 Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save hopelessly, helplessly sinful people. And that's really good news. That's awesome news. And if you were ashamed of that gospel message, you would also be ashamed of its messengers, especially the Apostle Paul, because he, he was in a, a lot of messes because of his preaching the gospel, and right now he's in prison. So Paul tells Timothy to not be ashamed of him either. He could be ashamed of Paul since Paul's in prison. Um, Paul's perspective was that he was the Lord's prisoner. He said, I'm, I'm the Lord's prisoner. He saw that he was there because of Jesus, and he wasn't primarily focused on the Roman authorities. He trusted that God was still working out his purposes, even though Paul was in a Roman prison. 
So we might, if we were Paul, we might say, hey, that's not fair. I mean, I'm preaching an unpopular message that's guaranteed to get me arrested and guaranteed to get me in trouble, and, and now I'm in prison. And um, this, is, this is what I get for, for, for doing your dirty work. Paul didn't think that way. How might we be ashamed of the gospel today? Well, similar reasons that they were then, 2,000 years ago. The cultural externals have changed, but human nature hasn't. We think, as humans, we think that if we need saving, it's from our bad external circumstances. We may think that our main problems are financial, physical, emotional, mental, lack of self-esteem, environmental, educational, governmental, technological, social, or psychological. And those are real problems for sure. There are real problems that we face that are these things, but our core problem is that we are, by nature and practice, sinners against an infinitely holy God, a God who is perfect and infinitely holy. We are not right with him, and so we are liable to his eternal judgment. Now, our culture rejects this definition of, of, of the bad news, so they don't accept the good news. Many people believe that the only wrong is to say that something somebody else is doing is wrong. You're wrong to say that what I'm doing is wrong. And the only sin is to feel bad about yourself or make somebody else feel bad about themselves. Salvation, then, is um, feeling better about yourself. You just need to look inside and believe in yourself, and that's, that's the culture's definition of salvation. If any religious beliefs help you be a better person, it doesn't matter what they are, whatever works for you is, is all that matters. As long as you're trying to do the best you can, God, if there is a God, will accept you. But again, the, the problem for which the gospel is the answer is that we are spiritually dead in our sins, Paul says in another letter. We are by nature children of wrath, corrupt, guilty before God. The diagnosis is not good. But Christ, the glad news is, Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's what we just received in this meal. We acknowledged that that's, that's where our hope is. He paid sin's penalty for us, broke its power over us, so that all who believe in him could be saved and have eternal life. This is gospel good news. And as the Apostle Peter said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are we ashamed of this gospel, which is so contradictory to the way our culture thinks? Our culture sees the claims of the gospel as bigoted, judgmental, 
narrow-minded and intolerant. So what do we do with that? How, and how might, might we be ashamed of it? Well, um, we could believe it, believe that, that these things are true, but we just are silent. We never bring it up. We don't ever talk about it. Or we begin trimming away or changing our views on, on the parts that are offensive. Hey, this, is, this doesn't work, so I'll, I'll, I'll alter it so that it's a little easier to swallow. In fact, fewer and fewer evangelical believers believe the statement, only, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Fewer and few, fewer of us believe that. More of us are, are open to, hey, just whatever works for you. Whatever, whatever way you think is good for you, that's, that's, that's what works. Paul calls Timothy not only to be ashamed of, to not be ashamed of the gospel and of him, but to share with him, to join him in suffering. Hey, suffer with me. Better to suffer with friends. Timothy could be ashamed of the gospel because it brings rejection and persecution. Persecution involves suffering. Timothy knows that Paul has suffered much for the gospel, so he knows that remaining loyal to the gospel and, and to Paul uh, makes suffering inevitable. So Paul says, don't avoid suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering with me. The gospel only spreads through suffering in this world. So we need to decide, is, is the gospel worth suffering for? Or do we avoid suffering at all costs? Well, there are two ways we avoid suffering for the gospel. And one way is by insulating ourselves from the world. We just stay in our Christian bubble. We insulate ourselves from the world. We don't engage. And so, therefore, we're safe. We avoid um, any, any opposition. The second way we avoid suffering for the gospel is by revising it or by hiding those elements that are, are offensive. We revise it and we hide what is offensive. For example, if we only say the gospel is that God loves us unconditionally and, and that Jesus came to help us live better lives, we probably won't be persecuted. If that's all we say about the gospel. In America, we're not persecuted like our Christian brothers and sisters in, in North Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia including countries such as North Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, and Iran. Um, North Korea, is, they, they get the prize every year for being the worst persecuting nation of Christians. They, um, they find creative ways to humiliate, to torture, to abuse, to imprison, and murder anyone who, does, who dares to profess Christ or to pick up a Bible. policy of guilt by association also applies so that if you are arrested for being a Christian, your whole family gets also punished. All your relatives. The cost of following Jesus in North Korea is not just your job loss, not just your well-being, not just your freedom, but your whole family. Your mom, your brother, your children can be put in prison camp, uh, physically abused in various ways or run over by a steamroller. That's how they do it sometimes. 
four Iranian pastors were, were murdered because they refused to sign an official declaration saying that they would not evangelize among Muslims. Now, how might we suffer in, in America? Where probably you're not going to get rolled over by a steamroller for your faith in Christ. Well, we'll, we'll talk some more about it later, but just for now, to, to, to mention any opposition uh, that you face because of your commitment to Christ and his gospel, any, any way that we're excluded or mocked or fired or demoted or any relationship that we lose, any abuse we receive, any, any good thing that we have to give up for Christ and for the gospel is suffering for the gospel. So just because it's not as intense as it is in, in many parts of the world doesn't mean it's, it's not suffering for the gospel. And any work or, or resources that we put into spreading the gospel may not involve overt suffering, but where you're, where you're having to put out, spend some of your resources, your, your uh, hard work for the gospel is, is a type of suffering for the gospel. Of course, most of American gospel suffering doesn't compare to North Korea or Iran or Iraq or Pakistan. But we are to be faithful to the gospel in our context, and that's what counts. That's what, that's what God asks us to do. He doesn't ask us to step into their context necessarily, though some people do step into other contexts to serve Christ. You say, but I don't have what it takes to endure gospel suffering, even our American version of it. It's too hard. Paul calls Timothy and us to suffer for the gospel according to the power of God according to God's power, not in our own strength. Now, what does that mean, suffering for the gospel according to God's power? Well, it means God promises to work in and through you in his power when you suffer for the gospel. This doesn't mean you avoid all the painful aspects, like you don't, it doesn't make suffering easier, but he enables you to endure it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. I have this on the screen. Paul was suffering, and, and he prayed to God and said, Take this away. And, and God said to him, Christ said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Hey, if I'm going to suffer, I want to suffer with his power. So I'm just going to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I, I can't do this. I need God. I need Christ. And that brings power. For the sake of Christ, he says, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Peter puts it this way in, in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Well, Timothy shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel and its messengers, and he can suffer for the gospel by God's power because of what Paul says in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling. Since God saved us from sin and eternal death and has given us eternal life in Christ, 
we know he can enable us to endure suffering, anything in this life, by his power. He got rid of our worst problem, so he, he resolved our, the worst thing that we were going to face. He can give us the power to endure the less. Because eternal suffering is a lot longer and harder than temporal suffering. And you don't want to find that out. God called us to a holy calling, he says. In saving us, he set us apart for his glory and for living holy lives distinctively for God and his gospel in the world. If you think, talk, and act like the world, they won't persecute you. If you just reflect back to the world what they already think, yeah, they'll, they'll like you. Sometimes we make such an effort to say, I'm just like you. Well, in many ways, we are just like people in the world who are not Christians, but in other ways, we are not like them. And we're not going out of our way to, to prove that by just doing what they do or talking like they talk or thinking like they, like they think. Paul will say later in chapter 3 of this Second Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't compromise godliness to avoid rejection. God didn't save us because of our works, he says. He didn't call us to a holy calling because we already could do holy things. He saved us and called us because of his own purpose and grace. He saved us and called us not because of some good potential he saw in us, but because of a good purpose that he had in himself. He, God did not save us and call us to himself because of some good potential he saw in us, but because of a good purpose that he had in himself. God just had a good purpose to save us. He saved us and called us not because something about us obligated him to. You know, well, I've got to save him because they're, they're really going to be such good people, so I've got to save him. No. He saved us and called us to a holy calling freely by his grace, just completely by grace, totally freely, no obligation. Sin disobligated God to save us. So it was completely by his grace. And because God's saving and calling us was completely because of his, his own purpose and grace, he gave us the saving grace in Christ Jesus way back when. Before the ages began, he just said, yeah, they're only going to be able to be saved by my grace, and so I'm, I'm guaranteeing to, to give it to them. So he, he pre-planned it way back before creation. Because his saving grace was not contingent on our performance or worthiness. It was conditioned. It was conditioned. His saving grace did have a condition. And the condition was it had to be accomplished in Christ Jesus. So it was in Christ Jesus. It was never apart from Christ that he designed to save us. That Christ would come into the world was the guarantee that we would be saved. What Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he, this is how he, he says the same thing. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So if, you're, if you are saved today, God already had your name in his book before the foundation of the world. He didn't say, oh, wait, 
I think, yeah, there's another one that looks good and got potential there. You know, he, he already pre-planned it. And he, in, in his plan, he, he planned that you would be holy and blameless before him. And then in love, he predestined you for adoption as sons through, through Jesus Christ. He just freely chose to set his love upon you and to adopt you as his son or daughter. According to the purpose of his will, his purpose was God's purpose. Since God has so powerfully saved and called us because of his own purpose and grace in Christ from before time began, we can endure suffering. He gives us the power to endure suffering. And he goes on in verse 10 and says, he's talking about why the gospel is so important that we'd be willing to suffer for it because God's eternal purpose to save a people by his grace had to be accomplished. In actual history, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is the revelation of that. So that's why, that's why the gospel is so important because it didn't automatically come to us. It had to, it had to happen through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, him coming into human history. And then we had to hear that message and believe it. So this is how Paul describes it in verse 10. The grace that was given us before time began has now been manifested through the appearing in the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. What did he do? He abolished death. Literally, he, he rendered death inoperative. He made death powerless. Death has been served a death sentence. Now, until Christ returns and, and we are raised with immortal bodies, we still physically die. But Christ has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel so that since by faith in the gospel, we who have been united with him in his death by faith shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. So we are going to be made like him. When he appears, we shall be made like him. It is only through the gospel proclaimed and believed that we can receive Christ's victory over, over sin and death. That is why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, because it's the only cure. There's no other cure for death. They're not going to figure it out through genetic manipulation. It's only through the gospel. The only way to receive the guarantee of eternal, immortal, incorruptible, joyful life with God forever is the gospel. And Paul says in verse 11, Christ appointed Paul as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So he was a preacher. He was a herald of the gospel. The gospel is an authoritative message to be declared, to be proclaimed, to be announced. Christ appointed Paul an, an apostle. That means he's sent. He's a sent one. He's a missionary to proclaim this message to all the nations, to start the gospel spreading through the nations, multiplying disciples and churches among the nations, and to get the church um, founded and grounded in the gospel to spread it. 
And Christ appointed Paul as a teacher of the gospel. He was to establish the teaching about the person and work of Christ and how we live out our identity in Christ. Jesus appointed his apostles to ensure we would have the truth by which people could be saved. We are not to tamper with the truth of the gospel. We are not to reformat it to make it acceptable to our culture. We are not to dilute it, dilute it, D-I-L-U-T-E, to make it easier to swallow. Just a spoonful of falsehood makes the gospel go down easily. No. And we don't redefine sin because then people don't know what they need to be saved from. If you, oh, well, the culture says this isn't sin anymore, then you take that off the table, and they don't know they, they need to be saved from it. They think they're okay. So we don't do people any favor by just affirming their redefining of sin. So don't be ashamed of me, says Paul. Don't be ashamed of those who are faithful to the gospel. He says, my present suffering is part of the price I pay for carrying out what the Lord appointed me to do. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, the world may say they, they like Jesus. A lot of people like think they like Jesus. He's a good man, a good teacher. He was a good moral figure. He was a good example of somebody who was willing to suffer for a good cause. And They think they like Jesus. But if they, if they don't like the gospel, if they reject the gospel, they, they hate Jesus because the gospel is what Jesus was all about. In verse 12, Paul says, this is why I suffer as I do, because Christ appointed me for the establishing and spreading of the gospel. But I am not ashamed to suffer. I'm not ashamed to proclaim a message the world thinks is foolish and offensive. Why not, Paul? Because I know whom I have believed. He doesn't just know what he's believed. He, he says, I know whom I believe. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day, the day he returns, what has been entrusted to me. Now, literally, that what has been entrusted to me, the literal um, translation of that is, my deposit, so um, until that day, what my deposit? A deposit is something that is entrusted to someone to take care of, to be returned to the original owner. So better translation, really, and some of the other translations get this, is that Paul, Paul is saying he's, he's saying that Christ is able to guard what Paul has entrusted or committed to. To him, that's the better sense. What has Paul entrusted to Christ? He's entrusted him his life. He's entrusted to him his ministry. That it's worth suffering. That it's going to be worth it. He will not have wasted his life. That's what he's entrusting to God. In 2003, Hannah Lee Greenwald and her husband, Werner, um, left their comfortable homes in South Africa 
to go be the hands and feet of Jesus in Afghanistan. At that time, they had two children, and they were ages three and five. So they went to Afghanistan in 2003 with their three- and five-year-old kids. Um, in November of 2014, the Taliban bombed their home and killed Werner and their two children. Hannah Lee says, she obviously continues to grieve the loss of her family, but she says it was worth it, and she wouldn't change anything because it was for the gospel. That's crazy thinking unless the gospel is true. Um, if you were at the memorial yesterday for John Stevens, his parents are radical gospel trusters. Their, their ability to comfort people like us is because they believe in the gospel. And they're gospel people. Does Jesus expect all of his people, including even American and Camasonian Christians, to suffer for the gospel? Well, do we believe people need to believe the gospel to be saved? I mean, do you believe that? Don't just give me the church answer. Do you believe that people need to believe the gospel to be saved, or God has plan B, C, and D, and X? Jesus believed it. The Apostle Paul believed it. Do you, do you have people in your life that need the gospel? Are you praying for them? Have we considered what part Jesus has for us in getting the gospel to them? So our response to this text, this passage of Scripture, should be to live for Christ and his gospel day in and day out. Serving Christ both in and outside the church. As those whom Christ has saved through his gospel, we should gratefully be living for the advancement of the gospel. We're not looking for persecution and unnecessary suffering. We're not trying to like create conflicts. Some people are just obnoxious in how they live out their faith, and so they, oh, I'm being persecuted, I'm being persecuted. You're just being crazy, just being silly. You're just being obnoxious. That's not what we're about. Not, not, not what Paul's saying, just be obnoxious for the Lord. We all have different roles and gifts and opportunities, connections and ways in which we can contribute to the progress of the gospel. As we do, we will encounter difficulties. They may not be severe. They may not be life-threatening. Maybe we're going there more and more in this country as as the bottom's getting pulled out of any moral sensibility and religious freedom, but uh, we're not quite there yet. It may be the challenge of making space in our schedules for people who don't know Christ. 
It may be the challenge of awkward conversations. It may be getting re- rejected by a friend or a family member or a coworker. What, what Jesus would have us do is use our relative freedom in this country, and we've got more freedom than any other nation in the world, that we're not being overtly persecuted. He would have us uh, not feel guilty that we're not. He would have us use our freedom to spread the gospel. Be involved or support local ministries that connect with those who may not know Christ. You could do that with Harvest Kids, with Pathways, uh, Student Ministries, Young Life. We should pray for those nations which where it is harder to live for Christ and, and His gospel. Uh, go on the internet and download Open Doors Watch List, and it gives you the top 50 nations for persecution. And you can pray for those those nations, believers who are in those nations. We uh, send and support uh, workers, gospel workers, who are spreading the gospel and strengthening churches in nations where uh, the uh, Christians are few. And we do that by investing in India because there's a lot of unreached people groups in India and also North Africa through the work of the Pringles and with MAF. Have you considered going to a country that's restricted access to the gospel for your career, for your retirement? Here's the real test. Are you praying for your kids and grandkids that they might choose to go to one of those nations? So suffering for the advancement of the gospel is not only about being persecuted for sharing the gospel or being a Christian. It is also about making choices about use of time, talents, and treasures and making sacrifices for the advancement of the gospel. It is about weak and ordinary people being empowered by God as they endure hardships, both big and small, for the gospel. We're going to pray, and it's also time we're going to receive the offering. So, ready for that. Father, your son Jesus was the ultimate sufferer to make the good news work. We would have nothing to say other than preaching morality or religion or amorality and irreligion or whatever if it wasn't for Jesus laying down his infinitely valuable life as the sin bearer and the life giver, bringing immortality and life to light through the gospel, accomplishing for us what we could never have accomplished. So that by your grace, you said before the foundation of the world, your plan to save a people out of sin was so certain that you, you... planted for the foundation of the world by grace to call us into faith in Christ and to holiness. So thank you for giving us so rich a gift. And Father, the least we can do is to, to make our lives a living sacrifice for you. 
And part of that, not all of it, but part of it involves, as part of this church family, the giving of our resources to your work. We want to be faithful in carrying out the work of the gospel here in Camas, Washougal, Vancouver, Portland, as well as we do pray, Father, for those nations. Uh, we, we have a stake in India, so we pray, Father, for Gilberts and Plays who are there serving you. But we, we pray, Father, for those many, many countries and nations where the gospel faces lots of opposition and often involves more intense suffering than most of us will ever know. So we pray for Morocco, Algeria, Senegal, Mauritania, Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, Nigeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Jordan, United Arab Emirates, Yemen, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, Brunei, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, India, Nepal, Bhutan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Moldova, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Dagestan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, Indonesia, Tibet, Mongolia, China, Japan, North Korea, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand. We pray for increasing gospel breakthroughs among those peoples and your deliverance and causing your people to stand firm in faith, knowing that they have Christ as their reward. Thank you. In Jesus' name.